Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host, and thanks for tuning in to today's episode, on which we will cover a timely topic called the Teen Mental Health Crisis, with a great guest and expert, Dr. Chinway Williams. She will introduce herself in the podcast and tell us more about what she does, but I promise that if you are a parent, grandparent, guardian, or teachers struggling with a teenager and concerned about his or her mental health, Dr. Williams will provide some great tips for you all. Things that you can try right at home, I promise. And she'll also talk about what's causing the crisis, particularly the soaring rates of anxiety, depression, and despair, right? I'm sure, well, if you're not living under a rock, uh, you've seen some of this. Sometimes it can feel hopeless for a lot of parents out there, but I promise after you listen to this, I think you'll gain some hope. No promises, but I think. And also real quick here, if you are a regular listener or like the podcast, please, please leave a review or rating on iTunes or Spotify. Reviews are the lifeline for independent podcasts, and I promise to keep this podcast independent. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, There's also a support the show button if you feel like supporting the podcast, but only if you enjoy it and get something out of it and want to see it continue. Hopefully you do, but I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay, right? All right. And now on to the topic of the day. Give me a few minutes here, guys, while I connect to Dr. Williams. All right. Everyone, we are connecting today with Dr. Chinway Williams, and she's a therapist, an author, a speaker, uh, and we're going to talk about mental health and teens and how parents can approach this topic, which is a really timely topic. I hear about it a lot from my listeners and friends and family, but first, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining, and do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and the work you do? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I I really appreciate it. Uh, So yes, I am a mental health therapist. I'm I'm licensed in the state of Georgia. And um, in my practice, I specialize in working with individuals. So this can be um, kids, although I'm not working with the littles as much anymore. Um, But I work with a lot of adolescents, young adults, I work with uh, professionals um, who are struggling with some form of life stressor, life transition, which can generate um, stress and anxiety and I, and even trauma. And so that's another uh, specific area of specialization for me, which is uh, trauma recovery. So I help people to sort of move through those really intense uh, trauma symptoms that can come from not just those big life events, um, but often just uh, the everyday, uh, stressors of, of life. All right. Well, like I said, this is timely. (laughs) Um, there's, yeah, um, there's, you know, just a lot of people struggling out there. Um, so in your work and your, your books, uh, you focus on the mental well-being of young adults and teens. And, you know, if anyone's following the news today, we hear a lot about the teen mental health crisis, and not just here in the States, but globally even. Um, I remember one statistic from the CDC uh, that said 60% of US teen girls say they feel persistently sad or hopeless. And I kept thinking about that for a long time and I'm like, man, that's a lot. Um, So my question to you is, do you agree with this? Do you think there is a crisis? And what do you think is driving this? I do. I, I I do agree that there is a youth mental health crisis. I started my career working with students as a high school counselor. Um, prior to that, I did a long-term internship at a college counseling clinic at the University of Georgia. So I ran groups. I administered you know, different tests, personality tests, et cetera, career inventories. I've always had a love for serving and supporting young people. Uh, So this has been probably about 18 years um, since I started working with young people. And I will say to you that um, 
my conversations with parents, with educators, with my pediatrician friends, um, and even what I'm seeing in my therapy practice has shifted significantly. So young people, they've always struggled with academic stress, right? Wanting to be successful, wanting to understand their next steps. Sure. Um, they have always dealt with social stress um, and uh, all sorts of, you know, stressors about just, you know, growing up and, and, and trying to navigate one's identity and how to separate that, especially teenagers from, you know, that of their parents. So those things I've always seen. Um, but what I'm seeing now um, really trumps uh, what I saw then. It, it, extreme, uh, well, I will say elevated levels of, of sadness, more and more complicated family issues. The academic pressures are there. Um, the social pressures are there. Everything has ramped up. So I, I have seen those statistics and I'm seeing uh, very similar uh, sort of presentations in real life in my practice. And so girls are, you know, much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety, depression, um, or despair, which is what we call it in one of our books, because sometimes there's not a label, there's not enough uh, criteria in terms of symptomology to meet a diagnosable uh, mental health issue, but parents are noticing that my child just seems different. Um, the, the, let's say a girl, for example, is not engaging in activities that, you know, she once loved. She's not connecting with her peers, which is really one of those red flag symptoms that we in the mental health field look out for as it relates to adolescence, because you and I know that adolescents, their moods fluctuate, right? There's a lot going oh, yeah. on <laughs> hormonally. There's yep. just a lot going on in general. And so it's not unusual to, to see a child having extreme levels of, of sadness one moment. And then, you know, the next hour they're like, oh, my TV show's on. And they just seem very enthusiastic. Uh, but this is much more than that. Um, uh, from what parents are reporting and from what I'm noticing in my um, in my practice. And one of the things that I, I do want to mention to your listeners, um, we have uh, a tendency, I think the 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 narrative has been um, collectively that the pandemic is uh, the primary reason that we are seeing elevated rates of depression, despair, self-harming, suicidal thoughts. But the truth of the matter is that even prior to the pandemic, anxiety and depression rates were becoming, um, were rising and were, you know, symptoms were becoming more and more common among children and adolescents, increasing, I believe the stat um, that I'm thinking of right now, increasing uh, by 27% for children and 24% for adolescents um, just between 2016 and 2019. And we're also seeing elevated rates among children. I know our conversation today is focused on teenagers, but um, we're seeing rates of anxiety and, and, and depression increase in kids as young as three years old. And, and we know that in, in 2020, 5.6 million kids, which e equates to about 9.2%, have been diagnosed with some form of anxiety and 2.4 million, uh, which is about 4%, have been diagnosed uh, with depression. So of course, the pandemic with social isolation and depending on where you are in the country, lockdown did not help. It only exacerbated uh, what we were seeing. And, and we actually um, paid attention to lots of studies in 2020 and 2021, where um, uh, parents who have children under the age of 18, over half of those parents, 53% specifically reported that their son or daughter were facing new or worsening mental health challenges. Um, uh, and they pointed to the pandemic. Wow. Those statistics are staggering when you listen to them. So 
the pandemic may have added to it, like you said, but what do you think, what else is causing this? Oh yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, there are so many different factors. Uh, mental health researchers aren't pointing to one thing specifically, but I will share with you based on my research, based on anecdotal evidence, based on what I've been seeing, again, being in this profession for 18 years, based on my conversations with educators, doctors, and researchers, um, there are several factors. So one key factor is the increase in expectations. Um, and sometimes those expectations are perceived. So I see that the kids that I am working with in my, in my private practice um, experience a lot of pressure to be successful. And sometimes I'll be very honest with you, that pressure does come from their parents or caregivers or teachers. Sometimes it's simply self-imposed. And so, you know, between standardized testing and the culture of, of achievement um, that many of us can, you know, point to uh, that's, I think, you know, apparent in our society. Today's youth can feel pressure in so many ways, pressure to succeed in so many ways that previous generations didn't. So the pressure to be the absolute best at everything. That's what I've noticed is one of the biggest differences um, since I was a school counselor is that, you know, a lot of my students at that time wanted to do well academically. They wanted to have meaningful relationships. They wanted to, um, you know, contribute to the school community. Uh, what I'm seeing now are especially my girls they want to be good academically. They want to be the best extracurricular, whatever they're doing, if it's art, if it's music, they want to be the best. They want to be the best um, friend that they can be. They are really pushing themselves um, to, uh, 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 I, I, well, I'll, this is what I typically say, the bar is held so high that it really is impossible to reach. Now, Parents ask often, well, where's that coming from? Well, here's sort of the low hanging fruit, um, but absolutely important to mention in this conversation, social media. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. I, so, I had a question specifically on that. So you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to go ahead and ask it? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, because I wanted to ask you about your two books and in one of your books, you uh, talk a lot about connection. And so my question with social media was uh, really about, well, how do you think social media is impacting connection? But but go ahead, to finish your thought, because it, I think social media is kind of, you know, can touch on a lot of different things. Oh, 100%. And, and your question is, is an excellent question, because it overlaps with <laughs> why we are seeing, in, in, in my viewpoint, and based on the research that I've um, explored why we are seeing elevated rates of, of depression, self-harming, and anxiety. So there have been several shifts in our culture, I would say, I don't know, in the past 20 years or so. Um, one was one that I want to point to is 2007. So in 2007, the first iPhone was released in 2012. Um, that was the year where more people in our country had smartphones than not. That is also the year where we saw probably the biggest spike in anxiety and depression among teenagers, especially teenage girls. So I, as a therapist, I've become really concerned about the fast paced nature of our culture. So when people ask me, well, gosh, you, you know, you work with stress and anxiety and trauma, like what's happening in the world that makes you, you know, most nervous. And, and what I say is, you know, the thing that causes me um, pause is just the fast paced nature. Again, um, we're moving, I believe at lightning speed, we're becoming increasingly less physical. Your question about connection um, fits really well here and less, we're becoming less physical and more digital. 
And the truth of the matter is, you know, any, if there are any neuro um, scientists that are listening here, um, they are well aware of the research that really points to how we aren't able to process, uh, you know, our brains are not able to process digital connection in the same way as face-to-face connection. And we like to give the next generation, the younger generation, you know, generation, you know, Z and alpha, we like to give them a hard time about, you know, being stuck on their devices or always in front of screens. But the truth is, as as adults, we can be just as bad. Um, I had a colleague that said, you know, he was quick to say this isn't based on research, but he was he was quick to say that he believes that, you know, most adults in our country are battling some degree of, of digital addiction. Um, so that's a tough thing to measure by the way, but that, but that's his, his sense, um, based on the work he does with, with families. And so we're constantly connected, not just students, uh, but adults. Uh, so there's some real consequences by the way, that go far beyond simply, you know, teen comparison issues online or, you know, wanting to be thin or wanting to look like the model or your the friend in, in the neighborhood that has on, you know, a, a great outfit or knows her angles. This goes well beyond instant validation. This does point to what we're seeing in the neuroscientific research, this constant flow um, of, of stimulation. So it's the amount but it's also just the the constant nature of data and information that's that's coming to our brains um, is impacting us. Screen time can be very addictive in nature, and it has a lot to do with dopamine receptors in the brain. There have been studies that have shown that screen time affects the the prefrontal cortex of the brain in very similar ways uh, to the effect of a drug like cocaine cocaine, believe it or not. Um, So similar to drugs, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, screen time sets off that pleasure reward cycle that can have a negative impact on our kids' lives, on our lives. Um, And one impact that one study mentioned is just really impacting, adversely impacting impulse control. Uh, And then the other piece is, you know, I work with with um, individuals who are managing anxiety. Um, some studies show that many people who are anxious are also highly sensitive. So if you are addicted to your device and you're constantly being fed all the terrible things that are happening in the world, and my goodness, um, it's a lot for, for me as a mental health therapist, it's a lot for anyone. So if you are a child, your brain hasn't fully developed and you're being fed all of these negative things, um, you're hearing about something terrible. Uh, this is, this is a tough reality. So the chaos of our world doesn't make navigating anxiety in our lives any easier. Yeah. And I think everybody can kind of relate to that when, with social media and, you know, even just looking back at my own life and now like it plays such like much more of a central role. And uh, I do, I always notice a difference when I just say, okay, I'm just going to turn off my phone and go for a walk in the park. And it's a noticeable difference, you know, like just the, I don't know if it's frequency or something that you're feeling, but uh, it's like, oh, I need more of that, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that disconnection. <laughs> Your, um, your body is telling your body yeah. is telling you something, right? Um, and yeah. how many of us get to use that's such a good example. How many of us want to turn off or turn away from devices? So we go outside and take a walk, but then one of the first things we do is we, um, you know, listen to music or we listen to right. a podcast and even a, a fantastic podcast like this one, right? Like <laughs> the, that's not a, none of listening to music, actually listening to podcasts. Those things are not, um, you know, bad things at all. But what we're hearing more and more now is that we are so connected that even just taking a walk, you could benefit, your brain will benefit, your body will benefit from just simply noticing the thoughts in your head and not necessarily listening to music. 
Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting too, because, you know, if you leave your apartment or your house without the phone, you have this like great sense of loss. And I'm like, we used to live without phones and we were fine. Like nothing bad, nothing terrible happened. And no. <laughs> now we just like, right. It's like full on panic. Like, oh, I might not be connected to my digital world for, you know, 20 minutes. It's, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. And, and, and it really, it really is so helpful to just tune into yeah. how your body reacts initially, because that could speak to, you know, mm. some, you know, yeah. spell over or, or, you know, um, <laughs> well, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say that you're addicted. Anybody's addicted, but you feel oh, you sort of the it. effects. No, it's of- true. <laughs> of like you're coming off of something, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a form of withdrawal. Thank you're exactly you. right. Thank you. Thank you. That it, it it is true. And then after a while, what happens? I always tell this story and I'll, I'll be very quick about it. I was working with a teenage uh, a girl who was um, struggling with anxiety. And she actually shared with me that one of her English teacher, I'm like, I just want to chef kiss this English teacher, by the way, but her English teacher had an assignment, um, that, um, simply the instructions were, you know, be without your phone, uh, for 24 hours. And, um, and it was headed, it started on a Friday. And so the, the, professor or the teacher said, and that you'll get extra bonus points if you're able to, you know, be without your phone until Monday morning. So it's Friday, see if you can go until, you know, Saturday or, or even Monday. And I remember that I saw this individual on a Friday afternoon and she was panic stricken because she, (laughs) she's a rule follower. She is a high flyer. She's type A, very driven, wants to do the right thing. Absolutely wanted those extra points, right? And could not imagine being away from her phone. And it was just almost like, you know, a a spiritual moment that we even had um, a session scheduled for that day because we were able to process how hard that was. And so I just asked her, are you able to just turn your phone off right now? She couldn't do it. And I said, okay, that's fine. Could you maybe delete an app that you spend a lot of time on? And she said, I don't know that I can delete it, but maybe I can move it off of my phone screen. I'm like, okay, I don't even have to do that. That's fine. And, and she just, she started just tearing up at the thought of not being, um, with her phone. And so long story short, I saw her the following week. This is what her parents reported. She cried, cried, cried that weekend um, for about 20 minutes because she just gave up her phone. And then when it came to Monday morning, she didn't want the phone back. So she started crying because she felt such a difference. Wow. And for a teenage, a 15 year old, not to want Mm. a cell phone back. (laughs) (laughs) That's unheard of. Yeah. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she, she was able to recognize the di- the difference. Right. And so, and then the conversation became, um, centered around, you know, boundaries, like, you, you know, you may, mm. you don't have to have it back, but if you feel like you need it to stay connected with your peers, you know, what can you do to limit, um, all of that input? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I have to say that even for myself, I get a little angry at myself because it's become like a crutch for me. Uh, you know, and I'm, I don't like that feeling. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm independent. Like, but I'm like, okay, I don't, <laughs> I'll be fine without this, but it, it, it's, it's really great that she was able to cultivate that type of awareness. Yeah. Um, so if you're a parent or, you know, a guardian out there and you're struggling, you know, I've had a lot of, uh, I've told some people that you were coming on the podcast and they're like, well, my kid is difficult. What should I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what, how can a guardian or parent approach a child who they think may be struggling with their mental health? Yeah, this is a really um, important question. Uh, I think the first thing to do is to recognize that if you're if you are a parent of of a teenager, for example, a lot of the symptoms that um, show up when a child is struggling with their mental health are also, you know, 
very common symptoms that are associated with adolescence and puberty. And, and again, all of the changes, the physical changes, the changes that are happening, you know, in the brain, um, all of those things can, can lead to a shift in mood. They can lead to isolating from, from family members. They can lead to irritability. Uh, but if you are noticing that your teenager is um, exhibiting certain signs such as, you know, maybe tearfulness or expressing a lot of guilt or is avoiding activities that, you know, he or she once loved um, or engaged in. And again, if they're isolating from their peers and it's happening more days than not. So every, every teenager is going to have, you know, off days, you know, things are going to be up and then things are going to be down. So that's not what we're talking about here. In order to be diagnosed with depression, we have to see a cluster of symptoms more days than not in a week for a period of two weeks. And here's the other piece of it. It has to impact their degree of functioning in multiple areas. So if you're noticing this at home, but you're also hearing feedback from the teacher that your child isn't turning in their work or they're not participating in class. And then you're also hearing from the soccer coach or the lacrosse coach. Then we absolutely want to pay attention. We don't want to slap a diagnosis on, but this is what I call yellow flags. We want to ask more questions and perhaps even schedule a consult with the pediatrician. But the question about how to approach your child, the first thing is to just let them know that you've noticed. Um, I can't tell you how many teenagers, right? The, the idea that we have in our heads is that most teenagers don't, don't want the attention. They don't want the spotlight. And definitely they, want, they don't want their parents to notice anything that they're doing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially the naughty things, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Please don't pay attention to me. <laughs> I, I think that's actually a really big misnomer. I have had multiple, I've been doing this for 18 years plus, I have had multiple young people say to me, um, one in particular, mom started dating. So the issue wasn't the divorce. Mom had been divorced for a while, started dating. And then mom was a bit of a helicopter mom and stopped um, really following up on things and asking questions and, you know, listening in on, on things and, you know, and, and the, the young person, this happened to be a teenage um, daughter said to me, um, like this feels weird. And she was like, and you know what, strangely, I don't like it. I don't like that. My mom is just letting me do whatever I want to do. Um, so the first thing is really to notice that there's some shift in, in behavior, some shift in mood that doesn't seem like it's just, you know, adolescent angst or the blues, um, notice, and then ask, the question and you use behavioral language, meaning you point out exactly what you're seeing. You're not being vague. You're not being sneaky. You're actually being direct, um, but very, uh, very kind in a very non-judgmental way. Say, Hey, I noticed that, you know, you've not been hungry. You've not really been eating a lot of your dinner. And when Jen you know, stops by, you're not interested in hanging out or, um, you know, whatever the change is. And I'm just curious about how, how you've been doing now. Here's the other piece. You're not going to always have, um, the perfect response, or you, you may not get even a response from your teenager, because sometimes that's the nature of teenage, you know, of, of your adolescent at that time, or it may speak to just some relationship difficulty, or maybe the child just doesn't know that this is something that they can talk about, but you still ask the question, you leave room open to um, have a follow-up. You let them know, okay, if they say, I'm fine, mom, I'm fine, dad, you say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to check in. Um, and you don't have to say, is it okay? That's your job to check in. So I also have seen in my therapy practice where young people are testing 
their their parents. Um, you know, parents may ask one time and they actually want to share that something's going on at school, like bullying, or there's a difficult breakup that they are grieving or struggling with but they're not sure that they can, or they're not sure that they can trust the parent, or they're not sure that the parent really cares. So they'll, they'll, you know, listen to the parent ask or check in, and then they'll sort of wait for the parent to check in again. Uh, so that's another sort of tip that I offer parents is that, you know, you want to follow up. If your child says everything's fine, there's nothing to see here, mom, nothing to worry about. That may be the case. Um, so it's still good that you inquired, uh, but the follow-up is really, really important. Um, and so the other thing that I want to add to that is, let's say you actually have a child that gives you a lot of emotion and maybe they're not even telling you exactly what's going on with them, but you sense that they are having a hard time. And, and we even call this a meltdown, right? It's not just with two-year-olds. Sometimes it's with 12-year-olds. Right. Um, this is what I want to offer to parents. Um, address the emotion. Don't focus at least initially on the behavior. Now, why is this? Am I a proponent for disrespectful or defiant behavior? Absolutely not. Um, however, when I am treating a child, a teenager who's struggling with their mental health, oftentimes one of the main symptoms is anger, it's irritability, it's isolation, it's defiance. So those things that typically really um, push parents' buttons are things that we tend to see when a child is struggling. Uh, so address the emotion not so much the behavior, because if you focus on the behavior, well, I don't like to be talked to that way. You cannot be just, you know, disrespectful to me. You may miss that moment. You may miss that moment, especially when a child is in the midst of, of, of high arousal, you know, right brain energy, the, the logical side is, is going to be shut down the logical side of their brain, right? We call it the hijack. So even the most insightful comment about how they can address this issue or how they need to be more responsible or, you know, how they needed to be more organized. That's why they didn't, you know, get the grade that they wanted. Let's say they're having a big reaction because they, they got a D or a C. Well, yeah, maybe you noticed that they were on TikTok last night instead of studying as, as, as late as they could have, or as much as they could have the, you know, the prior weekend. Those things are true, valid. But what I encourage parents to do is, and this is regardless of if there's a mental health issue, this is just about connection. Even if you have the best comment, um, hold it for a moment, because if you don't, in a state of high arousal, it's just gonna go over their heads. So do not try to fix the problem, address the emotion, the other piece of it is label the emotion. And we give lots of um, examples in, in, in our book, Scene, which is about connecting to a child who may be having a hard time with despair or anxiety or just a child who's just having a hard time, right? There's no label. They're just struggling with their emotion, right? right? So label it. Say something like, I can see that you're really frustrated right now. I can see that you're really upset. Um, and then the third piece, validate. So address the emotion, label the emotion, and then validate the emotion, right? So, okay, I understand that you really, really wanted to do well on this project. And the other two um, students on, on in your group just didn't pull their weight. Um, or I understand, you know, whatever the case may be, I, I understand that you're really mad that you have to finish your homework. Um, before you get to, you know, hang out with your friends or jump on your phone. I get that. I might feel frustrated too, right? And the importance of doing that, as simple as that is, um, is this. Oftentimes having someone just simply acknowledge how you feel helps to lower the cortisol, which is the stress hormone in the brain. It lowers the emotional temperature to a level that's much more tolerable which then it makes it easier for the child or the teenager to reflect and begin to problem solve. 
That makes sense. And I, and this kind of ties into, I guess, your title, uh, makes the child feel seen for you. Yeah. 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 Did you, did you want me to? Um, yeah, sure. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely more. do the, most of the talking. Here. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. I do wonder if I was talking too much, but, um, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yes. Yes. So we, um, so I wrote a book called, um, scene, which is all about the power of connection. Um, especially when you have a child who is, um, experiencing high anxiety or despair. We specifically did not put depression in, um, on, you know, as part of the title, because we didn't necessarily want to label anything. And we believe that anxiety is a normal human emotion. It happens to all of us, um, to varying degrees. So we actually started to look at the trends. And um, my co-author, his name is Will Hutcherson. He happens to be a youth pastor who traveled all around the nation, um, conducting assemblies about suicide awareness and suicide prevention. But he spoke directly to students. So sometimes he'd be in a gym with 400, 500, 800 students, and he would get them with music and then talk about the deep stuff. And then after the assembly, he would get droves of kids coming up to him, you know, asking really big questions and and sharing really intimate things. Uh, So he was working with our publisher and um, uh, providing trainings uh, to to the staff. I was doing blogs for a specific arm of our publishing company that worked with parents and provided information to parents. The publishers were like, okay, you guys are kind of doing the same thing. You're talking about something, you're seeing the same trends. So they got us together. Um, and this was right before the pandemic. This was actually in February of, oh, of 2020. And so of course the pandemic hit March of 2020. So that's when we were introduced to each other. We started writing, having no idea. We're thinking, oh, well, you know, we'll be back in person in like a week or two. This is going to blow over, right? Once right. we decided to kind of write down um, <laughs> our, 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 what we were seeing and create a manuscript. And then, you know, we realized that this is much bigger than what we thought. Um, so we were writing about how parents can help kids who are struggling, not knowing that once the pandemic hit and, and this book was published in 2021, that there would be such a big need. Um, so we talk about being seen, which is um, really, uh, if anyone is interested in doing a little bit of research on someone who <laughs> knows a whole lot about um, neuroscience, um, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's a professor and a, and a psychiatrist, um, he's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. Um, he's written a lot of books about mindfulness awareness and presence and, and, and the neuroscience and the neurobiology of um, a lot of mental health issues. And he has written several parenting books that I have followed. And for those of you who are interested, one is called The Whole Brain Child. And I was, I have been deeply impacted by that book. I think it came out in 2011 and it really transformed not just my clinical work, but my parenting. And and, and the whole idea is about um, how to you know, parent and raise and connect with your child, not just based on, you know, your expectations of them in the classroom, your expectations of how they should behave at home, what you want for their lives. So not just focusing on doing, but just who they are as human beings. So that whole thing about, you know, we are human beings, we're not human, um, you know, doers. And so just that, that presence and what that looks like. How do we, as not just parents, but caregivers, um, educators, we have a lot of educators that have picked up this book and really implemented a lot of the practices within the classroom. Coaches, how do you become more um, present with your kids? 
uh, or with your students and, and, and really helping people to know that this is a learnable skill. So I was influenced by some of that work. I'm also an attachment researcher, um, an attachment therapist, and attachment just basically speaks to those early bonds between a child and a caregiver and how that really sets the stage um, for who they become and how they show up in relationships and, and who they are as leaders and their self-efficacy and, and even just the, the, the nature of their relationships. So we blended a lot of attachment research with neuroscience research to come up with five different tools that we believe helps kids to feel more seen and enables parents and educators and leaders um, to simply be more present with their kids in a way that they didn't possibly experience as, as, as children themselves. So that's been a huge thing that has come out of our work is that we get to travel all over the country speaking to groups and we're talking to adults about their kids and then the adults start sharing um, oftentimes tearfully about their own growing up experiences and how they didn't really feel seen. So um, anyways, mm. I feel like I've talked a lot. No, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I love that you said that. It, it, and just recently I was um, having conversations with how we present ourselves even as adults to the world. And we're always like, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And when you think about that, it's like, it doesn't tell you really anything about, you know, is this person happy? Are they being true to themselves? You know, like we don't yes. necessarily focus on that as a society, you know, like we, I, you know, okay, you have credentials to do your job, of course. And, you know, we all have job experience and stuff, but it really doesn't say much about, are we content? You know, like, are we being who we are? Are we being true to ourselves? I guess. Um, and that's, and that's yeah. what, that's what every kid wants. That's what every yeah. kid wants. Do you remember, of course, the leaf blower is right next to me. Do you hear him? The leaf blower? Yes. He's so loud. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, but I think that, <laughs> that <laughs> always happens. It's, it's oh, okay. I'm so sorry. No, so anyways, you can I, keep this in or not. You can take it out. It's okay. But, um, <laughs> sometimes you have to deal with the leaf blower so. <laughs> it's like you know every time I'm on, I'm on a podcast yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember that sitcom from the 90s um the the um actor the lead actor was Will Smith and it was um Fresh Prince the of Fresh Prince of course yeah okay so he around that same time he people don't realize that he was also a rapper they forget but um they remember him for a lot of other things <laughs> these days right 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 <laughs> the Os Oscar Oscars shenanigans yeah. right um yeah <laughs> so that was standing he's a good actor and he also he was also a rapper and so one of his biggest hits that still you know is a, is a pretty big hit is called Parents Just Don't Understand <laughs> and it resonates I'll say that again because I was laughing parents just don't understand um and it resonates so much for for young people you know as a school counselor working with young people for many many years in the school system that's what I heard over and over again and not just parents but adults and it's like we sometimes forget right what what it was like to be young the pressures that we face when we were young. I often do this exercise at the beginning of um, some of my smaller, you know, workshops. I'll say, close your eyes and go back to when you were 13 years old and think about your, um, your joys, the things that made you happy, the things that made you smile. And now I give some time now think about your setbacks or your challenges or the things that you struggled with at the time, whether it was something within your home, your household, or, or something outside of your home. Who did you tell about your struggles and how do they respond? And what, what did you wish they um, at that time you know, how would you have wanted them to respond if they didn't respond in, 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 in a way that was 
helpful to you? What could they have done differently? And how did their action or inaction impact you moving forward? How does it impact you right now as a parent? And um, there's about probably five other questions that's a part of that sort of guided reflection exercise. But, you know, a lot of times half, half the group, they're in tears and I don't have to say anything. And, and there's sometimes like an epiphany of, oh gosh, I'm acting the way that my parents acted and that wasn't helpful at all. Um, so that is such, I think, a, a really, um, I don't know, maybe hopefully illustrative way of, of yeah. sharing why we wrote this book, um, working with or parenting or leading a child, especially a teenager who has difficult emotions and they're dealing with things that you can't even really fathom can leave you as a parent feeling intimidated and, and discouraged. It can feel so scary and you can feel totally helpless. So this book helps us to kind of break down what's happening in the brain when a child, a teenager is experiencing despair and simple but powerful tools that um, a parent or an adult can use every day just to connect with that child. I think that's a great exercise. I was actually just started to do it. I was like, oh, you're doing a podcast, not therapy, Aaron. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I was doing it, I was like, you know, I don't think I told anybody. I, like, and then I was like thinking about it. I'm like, I think I had ulcers because I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> Oh, but um no, no yes. it's it's yeah because I would internalize everything I you know high expectations type of stuff you know and yeah uh, yeah but I think yes. that's good um I I have I have a couple more questions for you yes. if you have still okay good and I want to talk a little bit about your new book but I also wanted to ask you um about the role faith plays in your work mm-hmm. um and you know I feel like in general, there's less faith out there. And you probably have experienced this. Um, sometimes when you work with different circles, academic circles or intellectual circles, um, people kind of look at you like, oh, faith, like, what's that? Like, it's trendy almost to not believe today. Yes. But and yeah, and like, I, <laughs> I experienced this because I do have faith. And I, maybe it's not so organized, but I do have faith. And I don't mm-hmm. think it means I'm not scientific. You know, I, mm. it's, I think the two are perfectly compatible, but um, I just was curious, like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And, and the role faith should play or does play in our mental health? Yeah, absolutely. So nearly 80% um, of, of Americans, um, this is like an older study. I, I, I'm curious because I think you're, I know that you're right, especially among young people, uh, their faith is less organized. They will endorse spirituality over religion. Um, and then in, in a lot of cases, young people who grew up in a very organized faith tradition have walked away completely because there's just an overall mistrust of, um, of institutions. And there's so many reasons for that. Um, and religious institutions, um, uh, 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 fall into that as well. Um, but there is a significant, uh, relationship between religion or spirituality in, in mental health. Um, so for people who have experienced, um, an adverse, something, something terrible, something that they would not wish on, on anyone, or they're just having a really tough season. So it's not a traumatic event, for example, but just, you know, the hits keep coming, right? They just can't, they can't escape all of the curveballs that life keeps throwing. Right. A lot of people turn to their faith as a source of, of solace and, and support in their most stressful moments and especially grief. Um, I find that oftentimes when people have left their faith or they aren't able to really articulate faith, um, if they have the experience of, of losing someone um, close to them, that brings them back, you know, even if it's temporary. Uh, so, um, there are, um, empirical studies, uh, that involve different groups who are dealing with so many different life issues, um, from illness, losing a loved one, divorce, 
um, having a serious mental health issue to experiencing a, a, a natural disaster. Um, these studies show that religion and spirituality are generally extremely beneficial in helping people to cope. So it's an important coping mechanism. Um, and I should also mention, because I'm, you know, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist and I, and I work in the field of trauma. Um, there's some forms of religious coping that are more helpful than others. And you also will have conversations. I know I do, and I'm sure you have with individuals where it's not just that they're skeptical, skeptical, or don't believe they have had an experience that's been very toxic sure. to their mental health. And it's been, um, traumatic. And so we hear oftentimes in the ether, you know, um, church hurt or religious trauma. And, and, and it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Uh, but some of the more positive religious coping methods include, um, receiving spiritual support directly from God or a higher power via praying, um, fasting or connecting with other people. Um, the act of gratitude, um, uh, forgiveness comes up as for some faith traditions that, you know, there's a big emphasis on, on, on forgiveness, um, receiving support from a ministry leader or someone who is a, a member, a clergy member, those things, um, people have reported have, um, enabled them to, to make, um, meaning. Uh, but I think it is, it is important to <laughs> mention that, um, some religions, um, because religions, you know, and, 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 you know, religion can be, um, well, it, it can, it, yeah. it, it can be problematic. Oh, it yeah. can be, it can be very problematic. Uh, and, um, yeah, I've, I've worked with lots of people who have left religion are questioning their faith because of individuals who have, um, been extremely harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I, my dad used to always talk to me about this. Um, he's like, you know, like, there's religion, but then there's also what humans do with religion, you know, mm -hmm. and you just, you have to always be mindful of the differences. Um, you know, the, the, you could see the good, but sometimes humans being humans, we don't always use it for good. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I do. You mentioned this earlier, um, or you alluded to this and yeah, for many, many years in, in our profession, uh, the mental health profession, uh, therapists steered clear of religion and spirituality in their, in their clinical practice. Um, and there's so many different, you know, reasons for that, but there are several really strong scientifically, um, based, uh, data, uh, that really speaks to integrating one's religion, if that's what they desire. So we don't push it on it on any individual. Um, I always ask the question, this is on literally on my intake for every single client. And by the way, I see atheists, I see, um, people who, um, I see Muslims. I see people who are questioning their faith. I see Christians. I see, um, just, you know, a little bit of everybody. And I, and I really appreciate that. I have a strong faith myself. Um, I believe in, uh, Jesus as my source of, of hope and comfort, but I would never push that on anybody else. And so I find it interesting that people do know that about me and they may not believe at all and they'll still come. And so one of the questions that I have on my intake is, um, to what degree does spirituality or faith play in your life? And boy, it just, that question alone, like they, it's a written, it's something that they write in or type in, but then I ask it again during um, the face-to-face -face conversation that I have with my new clients and I get so much information. Uh, but the bottom line is the research is showing that spiritually integrated approaches to, to treatment of any mental health issue can be just as effective as other treatments. That's, that's fascinating. And I just on a personal anecdote for me, it's always been, I always uh, look at how people approach health, you know, mind, body, then there's the body approach, the mind approach. But for me, uh, the spiritual stuff came from this inner desire, like this need, like, oh, I need something. 
Mm. You know, like, what is that? And that's kind of where the seeking came, like for the spiritual stuff. Like I actually felt like I needed that. So any, any approach to me needs to involve like mind, body, spirit. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. So I'll actually look at, for example, if I was looking for a therapist, I would want that. I wouldn't want necessarily a therapist who, who said, oh, the spiritual stuff, there's nothing there. There's nothing mm-hmm. to it, you know? Right, right. It just wouldn't feel right to me. So yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's great. I wanted to just ask quickly about uh, your next, your new book, Beyond the Spiral, Why You Shouldn't Believe Everything Anxiety Tells You. And I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit. I know we're don't have too much time here, but just what is that spiral? And, you know, cause I don't think people recognize it necessarily when they're in it. And then, you no. know, <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you can make some pretty bad decisions that you probably wouldn't otherwise make or say things maybe, um, you know, and I, Hey, I, I can tell you, I've certainly experienced that. And then you're like, I, you kind of want to know, like, oh, am I spiraling? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, this is actually a beautiful segue because I, um, uh, we were just talking about spirituality and and faith, and so our newest book that was just released last April um, is called Beyond the Spiral: Why You Shouldn't Believe Everything Anxiety Tells You. And so, in this book, first of all, I should probably share that when we were promoting the book Scene, which is for parents and caregivers, we would have parents. Um, we would sign, you know, do book signings at the end. Parents or educators will purchase the book and they'll say, well, I'm going to get one for me and I'm going to get one for my kid. And we'll say, wait, no, no, no. This, this book is for adults. And they say, well, where's the one for teenagers? And we'd say, there isn't (laughs) one. Or we'd give other, of course, we'd give other uh, recommendations. So this book was really born out of a request from people all over the country because anxiety is now the number one mental health condition. Uh, so speaking of, of, of faith and, and, and spirituality, this book contains um, database, research-based information about the dynamics of anxiety in teenagers and young adults. Uh, but in each section of the book, what we do is we present a lie about anxiety because the book is about the lies that anxiety tells you that comes from the spiral. And I'll talk about the spiral in just a second. But it also has information that an individual can use and digest, which is really replacing the lie. So you have the lie, would you want to replace the lie with the truth? And so we offer readers um, action steps that they can take to really reduce anxiety with the help of spiritual practices. So every chapter has um, ground tested strategies um, to help with fear, worry, panic attacks are on the rise. And so we really focus on that, especially with this population um, uncertainty, and then also how to address it holistically. So that's the, that's the word holistically. So from a spiritual perspective, from a food-based perspective, from a um, um, put your screens down for a moment and go meditate perspective. <laughs> um, and so um, that we're really excited about it because we're getting really good feedback, even from adults who are reading it to their spouses in bed. It's actually hilarious what we've been hearing. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so that dreaded spiral. Yeah. So the this is the short version in the book. Of course, we go into more, um, more depth, but um, the anxiety spiral is where all the physical senses, because anxiety isn't just one thing. Anxiety is multiple things. Anxiety, you know, encompasses or is characterized. That's probably a better word um, by our, our thoughts, right. Our worried fill thoughts that are often filled with, you know, what if this happens? What if it doesn't happen? And then what? And that's another sort of um, sign that your child may be struggling with anxiety on some level. We don't want to say a disorder if they're constantly asking you what if and constantly needing reassurance. So those are the thoughts that are, you know, characterized, that characterize anxiety. But then the emotions, right? We mostly think of anxiety as an emotion, right? So it's that feeling of dread, uneasiness, um, restlessness, and I just don't feel settled. 
and my body. I don't, I have a client that says, I, I, you know, I feel untethered. I feel like I'm floating. I don't feel anchored. Um, so that's the emotional piece, but then anxiety. And, and this is in a lot of ways, um, how I differ anxiety from stress is that there's a huge, you know, physical component. Um, and that's how I actually, I, I differentiate it from, from worry, you know, worry is often in your head, anxiety is in your body. Uh, mm. so you have the sweats, you have, um, the increased heart rate, uh, you have shakiness. Um, one of, I did a, a, a group, um, facilitated a group exercise and, and someone said, you know, my anxiety comes out, um, as, as, as stuttering. And I just love that he even said that out loud to the group and he stuttered a little bit and people were like, yeah, that happens to me too. Uh, so it's very unique to each individual, but there are certain things that we all recognize as part of anxiety, you know, feeling very warm, all of a sudden heart palpitations, um, that ache that is in your neck and you're like, what I, did I pull something? And even just that stomach pain, because lots of times anxiety really does, um, manifest as gastrointestinal issues. So then you have all of these things, right. And these feelings, these thoughts, these behaviors continue to reinforce each other. And anxiety has that pattern that typically starts with an emotion or a thought, which then creates more thoughts and more emotions, and then ultimately a behavior. And so that's what we call the spiral and the spiral intensifies until something or someone helps you to break the spiral. So after that stressful event has gone away, or the logical part of your brain has assessed how to cope with that stressful event, your brain is able to break out of the spiral. However, when you start to believe the lies or engage in the lies, that's when you spiral. So that's sort of the reinforcing aspect. So that's sort of the quick and dirty version. Hmm. No, I think um, I, I'm going to read your book about that because uh, I think, I mean, I've, I've seen it happen to a lot of people, you know, and you think it can be really distressing. It can really interfere with your relationships. I mean, I'm sure I'm telling you this, you're the expert, but you know, like just yes. thinking about the damage it can do. And it's like, not even really you necessarily. No. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, it's almost like you've been hijacked, right? Yeah, exactly. Because, hijacked. Yeah. It's a great, mm -hmm. it's a great term for it. And it'd be nice to, uh, to, to, to be able to recognize it for sure. Yeah. Um, this was all great. Thank you so much. This was all super helpful. And I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of people wanting to buy your books or follow your website, social media stuff. So can you share um, where folks can go? Absolutely. You can learn a lot about um, my work and my books. And even if you are interested in uh, trainings or other resources from my website, which is Dr. Chinway Williams com d-r-c-h-i-n-w-e williams.com um for those of you who are on social media i'm mostly active on instagram i share mental health tips and strategies and sometimes even fun things that's going on um with my family on dr uh chinway williams so it's at dr period chinway williams and that's my instagram handle Okay, perfect. And for our listeners, I will share those links in the podcast description too. So if you don't have to scribble anything down. <laughs> if you're running for a pen, we'll, I will share them. <laughs> um, thank you so much, uh, Chinway. This was great. And, uh, and, and, you know, all, I wish you a lot of luck with uh, the work you're doing and uh, Lord knows there's a need. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me and allowing me to get really practical. There's a lot of information out there that's high level. Um, yes. but I think right now with information overload, we just need like just a few steps. You're <laughs> so right. It's, it's, uh, I even find it, gosh, it's like, where do I go to get information on like what I need to do or what I have to do? It's yeah. like, you're swimming, like you're just swimming and stuff online and ugh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen, but, um, and you, you are, you work in private practice. Do you see people like digitally too, or. 
I do. I do. Telehealth okay. has of course boomed um, since the pandemic. So many therapists are seeing um, individuals via um, a video platform. So I do that as well. That's great. And you had the leaf blower, but you probably hear the New York City traffic behind <laughs> me too. So <laughs> welcome to my world. <laughs> I love New I love New York. Oh, it's never quiet. It's never quieter. I just I post there was a, a there was um two men and a woman breaking, I don't know who was breaking up with who, but there was a whole <laughs> I was trying to sleep last night and I was like, my God, can someone please just like <laughs> make a decision? <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, you hear everything in New York, but uh it's a fun, it's a fun city, but <laughs> noise pollution. I'm actually doing a podcast uh I think in two weeks on noise pollution. So, oh, um, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I know all about it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. And this has been a wonderful experience. You take good care. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Thank you again for listening. Please share, subscribe, and tell me what you thought. As always, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Tal. <laughs> and as promised, I included a link to Dr. Williams' website and Instagram in case you want to read her books or follow her tidbits on the gram. All right. And now for today's quote. This is from Thomas Merton in No Man is an Island. The beginning of love is the will to let those we love be perfectly themselves. The resolution not to twist them to fit our own image. If in loving them, we do not love what they are, but only their potential likeness to ourselves, then we do not love them. We only love the reflection of ourselves we find in them. All right, guys, that's it for today and hope to see you here next time. Bye for now.